0: When I had satisfied myself that no star of that kind had ever shone before, I was led into such perplexity by the unbelievability of the thing that I began to doubt the faith of my own eyes. Il podcast interplanetario. L'esplorazione dello spazio a beneficio di tutta l'umanità. I tuoi ospiti in Inghilterra e nei
1: Paesi Bassi. Matti Ursel e
2: Oh yeah, baby Tycho Bray, who was born on this day. Hey, Matt. Ah,
0: hi, Julio. How's it going? We've got
2: Julio back.
0: Yeah, It's been a long, long time. Lonely, lonely, lonely time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been a bit busy here on uh, European uh, space transportation and rockets.
2: Yeah, it looks like you've had a, an interesting time. Yeah. Go on, tell me a little bit about Tycho Bray. It's his birthday. Born on today?
0: Exactly today. He was born in 1546. We're quoting this uh, today on his discovery of object SN 1572, also known as Tycho's supernova. Maybe you can tell us a little bit more about it.
2: Yeah, well, yes, yeah, supernova 1572. So in 1572 he saw it. Brighter than Jupiter, almost as bright as Venus, so it caused a stir all around the world. The reason why Tycho gets kind of the credit is because he wrote most about it in his book De Nova e nullius Avi Memoria Prius Visa Stea, Which is concerning the star new and never before seen in the life of memory of anyone.
0: And up to then, up to then, there was this um, belief that just stars did not change, right? Yeah. Aristotle was the
2: one that said, no, the heavens are just fixed. It's a fixed realm of stars.
0: So with this, okay, with this, you can start assuming that stars have a life, beginning and an end, and that they also move through time. Again, completely change our image of ourselves in the universe just like uh, Copernicus taken us away from the center of the universe and the solar system. now we, are, we also see that the solar system is not even in the center of anything.
2: This is a kind of period in astronomy that's very similar to the period that we're living through now, I think. like Tycho Bray obviously mates with Kepler, uh, is following in Copernicus's kind of wake as well. This is the time of Queen Elizabeth the I. Which is a bit of a coincidence, isn't it, that uh, it's both Elizabeth's on the throne here in England when all this is happening. ESA have got the Gaia mission, haven't they? And that didn't that release some data last week about um, moving stars?
0: Well, ESA, ESA's Gaia is like this big satellite to, to map and measure as many stars as possible in, in our skies. I'm definitely not a scientist and I have not... Work directly on this mission, but I can tell you that last week they released a new set of data uh, called Early Data Release Three, and this new release with this new release now Gaia uh, has measured more than 1.8 billion sky positions that could refer to stars or other objects under brightness values. This is and also it measure about uh, the distances to about 1.5 billion stars. The Gaia mission was such a game changer. It really, uh, in, in a few days of operation, gathered more data than what had been done uh, over decades uh, on, on other measurements.
2: That's known as astrometry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And,
0: and it's, at the end of the day, this is what helps you uh, navigate uh, in space. Because in space, you don't have a GPS, you know? Yeah, that, that's a really good point, isn't it? That This supernova really
2: was the start of everyone thinking, crikey, we really better take seriously creating star catalogs. Because a lot of the time, our, our sort of superhero of the week is always a star cataloger. And you realise just how important it actually is to have started to unpick the jigsaw puzzle that is...
0: Space. Yes, and just like in those days, they used the stars to navigate the seas. These days, we need those catalogues of stars to navigate space with our spaceships. We should say, actually, that you can
2: see the pictures of Tycho Bray's or Tycho's supernova. Um, uh, Chandra and Hubble, they're combined pictures of sn 1572 i think are what amongst the most beautiful objects that we have pictures of in the universe i think it's it's actually amazing yeah it's, it's a stand, so stunning it's photo. so colorful
0: and you're yeah. seeing the, the the remnants of a supernova Truly really impressive you can
2: map the movement of that that gas that sort of spreads over light years <laughs> it's actually incredible
0: uh, on a completely different topic, yeah. putting the brakes and, and turning you uh, in in direction of our planet now, these past few wee weeks have been quite active for many, many different startups and not so so much startups. Uh, lots of movement in terms of money and contracts. Uh, where, where should we start?
2: I guess start, if we start really close at home, because obviously Jamie and I visited Orbex, so if you want some more details about Orbex, because we actually interviewed Chris Lamore, um way back on Podcast 120. And uh, yeah, Orbex are a kind of British-UK small satellite launcher trying to launch primarily out of this Sutherland spaceport in Scotland. And they've won a whole bunch of fundings, 24 million, mainly from venture capitalists, but also from the European Union, European Commission... Horizons 2020 fund. So yes, Orbex is, um, if for those that don't know, let's like a quick recap is that Orbex Prime is their rocket and it's going to run on camping gas, which is quite funny. Biopropane is what it's actually running on. And that's supposed to cut CO2 emissions by 90%. Not quite as much as the space elevator from last week, but uh, it's pretty good. It's supposed to be reusable, but we we actually Chris L'Amour talked to us about reusability on the podcast. But he didn't. Re- but he has. He's yet to reveal how they're going to do it. But they are going to do it, not by parachute or helicopter, like the Electron. That's looking really, really good for Orbex. If they've got they've got more money and they've got more people talking about them, so that's that's pretty encouraging stuff. So they expect to launch in twenty twenty two. Even Chris Lamore himself commented that space launches always go behind schedule a little bit. So um, yes, the funding comes two and a half million dollars or euros. Of that comes from the European Horizon twenty twenty program which is a European Commission thing and it's the first UK space sector company ever to uh, receive that uh, money from the European Commission so that's that's pretty exciting this is now a race that as
0: Yeah they are actually they are actually not the only uh, micro launcher company that got some funding this week last uh, no. Wednesday you had uh, ISAR or ISAR and which one? I don't know which one it is aerospace. Let's go
2: with ISAR to avoid.
0: <laughs> let's go to with to avoid confusion. <laughs> let's go with ISAR, aerospace that uh, raised uh, seventy-five million euros, which is about ninety million dollars. Yeah. And this is the biggest funding round by a European space technology startup ever. Wow! Mostly as well from from private investors. Uh, their rocket's called the Spectrum. Is that right? Is that that is correct, Matt? Um, um funny enough, the ISAR uh, Aerospace uh, Rocket Factory Augsburg and High Impulse are three German micro launcher companies that um, we have res- recently here ISA signed contracts with under our ISA Boost program. Uh, in this program, we are trying to. <laughs> pun intended, boost these commercial initiatives uh, for all these companies that are trying to offer space transportation, not so much uh, the micro-launcher itself, but the services. We are trying to boost them to to be able to provide these services in the market.
2: It's Eric Berger pointed this out, didn't he? That That actually there really is a race for the European micro-launcher market. So... Their Rora are in there as well. And of course, Lockheed Martin and perhaps Electron, if Lockheed Martin isn't the Electron bid, which I've still not quite grasped whether
0: that's there, there seems <laughs> which to be, way around it is. There seems to be a race for for micro-launchers worldwide, because you, worldwide, have, activity, yeah. you have activity in China, you have lots of activity in the US, obviously, with the... Rocket Lab and and Virgin Orbit and um, okay there are many others that I, I don't want to list now but if you see uh, statements from let's say big bosses from the different established industry uh, companies they always claim that they see space in this um, ecosystem for one maybe two micro viable micro launcher businesses Worldwide, so there is—it's really a race, and well, we have to wait and see. Crikey,
2: well, yeah, over in over in New Zealand is a really interesting one. I thought so that that's Dawn Aerospace uh, have been licensed to fly their space plane. So that's a like a the, the New Zealand Civil Aviation Authority have granted Dawn Aerospace and their Aurora Mark II uh, the ability to take off from normal airports to deliver payloads to space, which, which seems, <laughs> which is a, it's a, it's a strange concept. That that concept of like a a, a a plane taking off from a runway right the way up. I suppose I mean it. I suppose it's a bit like the Virgin Orbit um, space
0: plane, but it seems to be a slightly different concept. Well, you guys um, uh, in the UK had forever uh, Skylon as well as another another <laughs> yes, type course. of horizontal takeoff.
2: Skylon seems to have been a, a long forgotten thing by reaction engines. They don't they don't really talk about it much anymore.
0: No, now they're mostly based on their uh, engine, the Saber. Yeah, and they're pre coolers, aren't they?
2: Yeah, but talking of space planes. Here's one that's that's uh, close to you, isn't there? The uh, the good old Space, space Rider. Space Rider. What what episode was? What episode was my interview with uh, Giorgio Tomino?
0: I don't remember. I think it was fi- number fifty-eight.
2: <laughs> Indeed, correct, correct. You number know, the Space 58.
0: Rider. Space Rider always makes me think of the Silver Surfer.
2: Yeah, of it's a good, Marvel it's a- Comics. <laughs> It's not quite as good a name as Dream Chaser, the Dream Chaser. I keep wanting to calling it Dreamweaver. the Dream Chaser, Space yeah. Rider.
0: But Dream Chaser Dream is a uh, Dream Chaser. Okay, it's, it's, it's bigger. And in one of his iterations, it's designed with humans, uh, with the crew in mind. Space Rider is smaller. It's, it's going to launch on, on Vega-C and uh, it's uncrewed. It's mostly for cargo. But what's uh, what happened this week is that we actually signed the contract. Uh, we signed the contract with a bunch of companies that will provide the what we call the space segment and the ground segment. So the whole system to take it all the way to flight. Uh, these companies were Thales Salenia Space uh, and Avio, both in Italy, and also Telespacio and Altec, all, all Italian. And then... Um, yeah. Now this this really means that now we have uh, all the funding to to make space rider a reality and bring it all the way to to fly in. Um, I I think 2023.
2: You, you say it's small, but it's the size of two minivans and can contain up to 800 kilograms of of payloads. That and of course the the great thing is it flies back to either Karoo or the Azores, and you can get your scientific experiment and get your, your hands on it straight away rather than having to wait for someone to fish it out the ocean, right?
0: Well, that that is the that is the, the that is one of the main points of Space Rider, the fact that you can recover your your experiment and then that you can refly you could even refly your experiment on Space Rider, okay? So you can get your experiment back, tweak it, get the data you need and instead of rebuilding a, pale, a payload of experiment all the way from scratch you can reuse it uh, inside of the same vehicle. Why not? That's that is it for space rider, and but it's I, not I it, really. It's do- not
2: it for space planes, though, is it? Because we've actually we should see a Virgin Galactic space plane attempting a its first suborbital space trip from Spaceport America. Which which were supposed to be big news, but there's going to be no crowds because of COVID. Of course, it's a bit of a space pla- It's a bit of a space plane week, or certainly a, a sort of small trip to space, <laughs> maybe suborbital week. I don't yeah. know. But but the big one of the week, we we can't go by w- without talking about perhaps one of the most exciting space events of the year, if not of all time.
0: Do I have to prepare my drink? I think you
2: definitely have to prepare your okay. drink for
0: this one. Tell me, what did Elon do this week?
2: Drink. Drink. Um, what did he do? What didn't he do? Well, first of all, one of the, my favourite pictures of the week was Elon standing next to Starship SN8, serial number 8. He was standing next to that, not Supernova 8, although we, it kind of did explode. Um if that's a that's a bit of a spoiler there but uh, he, that that picture of him standing next to the to the to the big old sn8 was absolute beauty and kind of brought that kind of whole scale to the whole thing but the but the flight the flight has to be said was nothing short of amazing what what's annoying what's really frustrating is how the press seem to have got it completely wrong they're just sort of more about the Elon Musk's Starship explodes on test flight. And it's like, no, that's kind of well, missing yeah. the
0: point. Doesn't that, that I mean, that, it does. That is probably gets you a few more clicks. And this is how uh, it seems to work these days, right? Like the I know, big flashy it's true. title. One of,
2: one, of, <laughs> one of the newspapers went yeah. with the headline, There Was No Crew on Board. Jesus. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> no shit so yeah that that (laughs) reminds
0: me of that tv host in the uk that asked tim peak about Uh, his trip to the moon remember that
2: Uh, classic classic and absolute an absolute classic (laughs) of embarrassment (laughs) Uh, but that but that 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 moment is is one of tim peak's finest hours the fact that he's got that training to completely Contain himself in that situation. I thought. I thought he dealt with it so unbelievably well because it's like you kind of want to go. Oh, duh, yeah. <laughs> but he doesn't. He's quite nice to her. Yeah.
0: But okay. Takes... Let's go back. Let's go back to. <laughs> Sorry. Yes.
2: Starship. Uh, yeah. yeah. So. It, I mean, we should we should sort of just quickly go through the whole thing because it it was amazing, wasn't it? Yeah.
0: It, I, I have to. Say, but... I watched it a few times. Um, because. Yeah. I've... You can, you can see a lot in it, okay? Well, the,
2: the, that's the beauty, isn't it? Yeah.
0: The, 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 the whole dance in the gimbaling of the different engines as, as one shuts down and, and gives space to the other two to get center and the other one gets out of the way, that's just beautiful. and Also, um, on the way down, uh, right before the spoiler that you mentioned before, <laughs> you can see actually a change in the color of the flame. That, that gives you a, a oh, hint yeah. uh, of the of the mixed ratio of uh, <laughs> of the oxidizer and yeah. the fuel itself um, I, I look I it, it's very uh, uh, it's just spectacular what they do and uh, I I look forward on what they do next
2: yeah I mean we've got we've got sn9 to look forward to I mean that that the whole. What the, the gimbling of the rocket engines? I thought was incredible because I, when I was first watching it, because obviously I'm not a rocket engineer, I was thinking, gosh, the sort of forces that the that the Raptor is going under looks so violent. When like when they switch off, it looks like the whole thing kind of recoils and bashes around. But that that wasn't recoil, was it? It, it was the gimbling to kind of cope with the change of thrust vectoring, I suppose. And it was just like the, the, they get that they they can move so fast. I just didn't realize that all that sort of gimbling is like incredibly fast, isn't it? It's like it's 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 amazing. But you, you have the, to
0: be fast. You have to be fast at those yeah. speeds.
2: Yeah, and I just loved when it was when it was going in for that as it belly flopped. I thought that the sort of belly flop maneuver where the where the fins are actually working for the first time, and you could see this <laughs> enormous, <laughs> like whatever, how many story building it is falling down. I, yeah, I, I,
0: it, it I made me think of a whale in space. Yeah, it was it, or a, or a it, flying whale in a way. It
2: did look like the pictures of the space shuttle. Uh, big orange booster as it came down to be honest and and it was like it's it sort of coming down but it's under control it's kind of going away from it's also they got a bit of sideways sideways motion on it so it takes it away from crashing down on all the important buildings um but it's falling down and then it flips it does the flip maneuver and everything looks perfect. You think, wow, that the header tanks have worked. So the header tanks are there to because obviously the fuel is sloshed around in the fuel tanks now, so you can't get the fuel into the engines properly. So they have these additional tanks, which mean you can fire the engines for this final burn after being sideways for for however many minutes it was. And all that worked, and they looked like two little fingers, didn't they? Or, or two, like, kind of blue legs pointing out the bottom of the booster. <laughs> and just at the last second, yeah, it turned to this sort of bright green. Now, that mm-hmm. the explanation I've had, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Julio, but the, the explanation I've heard is that the en- uh, the, one of the engines cut off because the pressure was lost, which is what Elon Musk said, that the pressure had been lost in the header tanks. So one of the engines cut off, and the other engine – meant that it was, instead of getting fuel, it was just really getting more oxygen than anything else, which means that it was running oxygen-rich and starting to eat the inside of the engine. So they call it an engine-rich mix, where the mm-hmm. copper in the engine it is basically burning in with the fuel, and that's what that bright green light was. Does that sound Does that sound feasible to you?
0: Um, I don't know. I, I cannot... <laughs> look, I... I have my I have my ideas, but uh, I uh, it would be a little bit of speculation on my side, and in, I'm not in a position to say.
2: I'm allowed to be speculative, though. But
0: you are allowed <laughs> to speculate away. Um, one of the things that uh, Elon Musk, right after the the explosion, he tweets on how happy he is that he got all the data, and and he declares the test a success. And I think this is this is what's important uh, to to mention is these are tests and things fail but why do we test to get data to get data so that when we do the real thing the real flight we nail it down and uh, this is how we learn so testing is learning and if your test is all perfect probably you didn't test hard enough so and (laughs) and it's really really great how he manages the expectations on this he uh said there was like one in a, one in three chances that they would stick the landing and uh already that that set, that sets your expectations from from the beginning okay i remember for falcon heavy i think he made a statement something like he was expecting a 50-50 chance of success on the first falcon heavy uh, flight and that he would be just happy if it didn't blow up the launch base yeah so then imagine when falcon heavy was Actually, successful. It's even it. It, it feels like it, it feels even like more because you knew from the first moment how low the probabilities are. So I I, I commend on the way that he can uh, uh, manage the expectations of the public. He's really good at that.
2: Yeah, in, in actual fact, Falcon Heavy, of course, wasn't completely successful because they didn't recover that central core. And and it and it's almost suffered from the same problem. That, that but
0: this is this is where you define success yeah, before you concept, actually yeah. do it. So yeah. if he says my success is to put that uh, to put the Tesla in orbit to Mars, and they achieve that, that is success. Think of all the Falcon uh, launches in which they managed to put the, the the payload in orbit, and then they didn't stick the landing you still consider that launch a success. You define define success before you take the action. And then you evaluate if you were successful or not.
2: Uh, th- this was definitely a success because you, you can see Musk next day wandering around the wreckage, which is fantastic pictures. He looks so
0: happy. You know, he genuinely looks like super chuffed, like a kid. But this is exactly the point. When when you were a kid, didn't you blow up things to see how they were? Oh, yeah,
2: no, absolutely. And uh, but he, imagine it. He's he's like a big kid on the biggest scale, isn't he? Not only has he done that this week, but also that uh, the SpaceX uh, cargo dragon launch that went to the International Space Station this week was the 24th successful launch for SpaceX. There's probably three more to go and that will be their, you know, it's already a record. So they've already set a record. So this has been SpaceX's most successful year like as just a commercial launcher. And so they're absolutely smashing it. They're absolutely smashing it.
0: Oh, but they, they are not uh, the new kids on the block anymore they are the they are a very very established uh they are well they are space. the
2: establishment yeah. <laughs>
0: they are they have become the establishment exactly
2: I mean the fortune's going the other way if we're looking at starliner uh that <laughs> that did the classic very very bad news while everyone's watching starship starliner uh they've they've announced a new launch date which is 15 months after their first attempt and that's before they get any uh crew on there so this is another uncrewed test of the international space station so that i mean that is that that seems to me like pretty
0: disastrous for poor old boeing they they had a test and they 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 have to do the fixes that they need to do. And this takes time. I think it's, it's good that they take the time they need to, to nail it this next time. It's very important to, like, I, you test things, but you want to maximize your chances that the test is successful. I'm just contradicting myself when I say that otherwise you don't test hard <laughs> enough. But you have to test hard enough, but you have to do your best effort to, to nail it. There is no point to, to rush it. Okay no. you do your test when you are ready to do it.
2: You know if I but saying that if I was a if I was a taxpayer and I was looking how much money Boeing had received how much SpaceX had received the mistakes that Boeing made and the mistakes that SpaceX haven't made when it came to commercial c- commercial crew I mean there's no two ways about it we need starliner because you don't want just one one you don't want just person. one provider. yeah. One, one provider, yeah. So, I mean, good luck to Boeing that they get it all sorted out. And absolutely, you can't take risks
0: with, with astronauts' lives. There the, because- they, they are different uh, development styles, okay? And uh, there, are, there are different ways to approach the problem. This is also why you go with more than one provider, in case one of them runs into delays, the other, you have less chances that both run into delays at the same time. Uh, So this is is just part of the business. And uh, eventually you want to have two uh, providers. That's important. You want them to be safe for the astronauts. That's the most important, I would say. So when they are ready, they are ready.
2: Talking of getting astronauts safe, one of the coolest things that went by this week, which I think probably would have got a bit more notice had there hadn't been so many other things going on, is uh, NASA have named the people that are likely to be the people that are going to be stepping on the moon. Actually, I've got a question for you at the this end is of This is for topic. the Artemis
0: team members.
2: Yeah, the yeah. Artemis team members. These are going to be yeah. the people... And one of these will be the first woman to ever set foot on the moon, hopefully.
0: The, they are uh, it's a long list. Maybe we can we can grow th- only through the names.
2: Okay, so we got Joseph Akabar, Kayla Baron, Raja Chari,
0: Matthew Dominic,
2: Victor Glover, don't forget he's up for a prize. He's up for our <laughs> space awards. Warren Hoburg? Yes, they are, right? Hmm. So Johnny Kim. Christina hammock Koch. Kiel
0: Lindgren and Nicole A Mann Anne McLean. Jessica me that uh, she actually uh, we shared the same degree we did both the masters degree in space ties at the international space university
2: were you in a were you in a were you in a year did you did you ever No meet no no
0: her? I think she did it like 5 years ahead of me oh. yeah ever
2: thought about being an astronaut julio
0: um. But yeah, back in the day, when when I was younger, I I thought I wanted to do that. What do you and mean when you were then, younger?
2: You're still a you're still a child. Uh, I am in my forties, uh,
0: but <laughs> when when I, let's say when I was uh, very young, I thought I wanted to do it, and then once I started studying, everything that can go wrong. Mm. let's say that my my self-preservation yeah. skills uh, to cover um but I, I do still enjoy a few other things like as cool i um i did a parabolic flight one of those microgravity flights that was super super interesting i, I don't think i have what it takes to be an astronaut to be honest when you oh. see these these are, these are super humans yeah you, well, you, you know i mean
2: every single one of these has got a degree, a master's degree, and and um, virtually all of them have got. <laughs> are also you need a master's well. degree
0: <laughs> or a PhD. You need um, uh, you need a self determination and, and, and a work ethic unparalleled to anyone. You need to master languages. You need to be able at the same time to to be a leader and be able to follow instructions. It's such a complex set of skills, which actually we go a lot into that uh, during the interview. Yep.
2: Well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So let's rattle through. So we got yeah. Yasmin Mogbelly,
0: Kate Robbins. Kate Rubins one of my favourite. Frank Rubio, Scott Tingle. Which I remember you you mentioned Scott more than once in this show.
2: Yeah, I think it's because Tingle has to be one of the greatest surnames. Such a it's. Tingle, you know, a tingle obviously is like a little sensation that you have, and it's quite nice. I, to, to I, I know what a tingle is, but
0: <laughs> I just, I just you know, recall you mentioned Scott Tingle more than once in, the, in this podcast. Yeah. I just, do oh, yeah, no, the... we, we
2: love, we love Scott Tingle, uh, uh, Jessica Watkins,
0: and Stephanie Wilson.
2: Yeah, who's a veteran of three space shuttle flights. So that I guess. Stephanie Wilson must be the kind of most veteran out of all that lot. Yeah.
0: And uh, well, and this list, of course, is missing that uh, hopefully there will be international astronauts as well in these missions, right?
2: Yeah. So, so that presumably there will be a bunch of European. How many European? I would assume
0: European, Japanese, uh, Canadian. I can only imagine that there has to be from all these different countries. Yeah. Um, as for the European ones, I, I, I have my, my personal favourites that I hope they make it to the moon. Um, but I, uh, I would put my money on, uh, on at least one French and one German. Obviously, for me,
2: I want, I want Tim Peake to, to, to be the, the, the first European to put his foot on the moon. That would be, that would be pretty epic, particularly considering we've, we've interviewed him.
0: Uh yeah, I, I, I have my favorites too. I, I'm I, I, I'm gonna
2: give I'm gonna give you a curveball. I'm I I'm gonna say Samantha Cristoforetti.
0: It would be certainly very, very interesting uh to to have a first European and first European woman to, to, to step on the moon. I think that's that's interesting. I have my favorites. Um I think my my most I shouldn't say this, but probably <laughs> my most favorite is astronaut, is Matthias Maurer.
2: Mateus Maurer is your favorite, yeah.
0: Well, he was,
2: he was quite old when he was picked, wasn't he? He was, he's, he's. In fact, isn't he the most recent pick?
0: He's the most recent pick, and, and he will fly for the first time after Thomas Pesquet on a on a on a dragon. I I think he's now training as a backup for Thomas. And uh, yeah, the, I I met uh, okay. Just why? Just how Tim is your favorite because he's British. I don't have an astronaut from Argentina, but Matias studied a uh, part of one of his degrees in Argentina. Ah. So when I met him and he starts talking to me in perfect Argentinian uh, accent, that's Whoa. it. He became my immediate favorite. Oh, fair enough. Fair
2: yeah. enough. He, he didn't rib. He, so he 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 didn't rib you about Maradona. <laughs> 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 just, just off air. Just off air. Julio's been complaining that people, when you meet an Argentinian, try to avoid the uh, going in straight with the Maradona thing. That's my tip for the top. I mean, I must admit, after like a virgin, I don't think he released anything that was particularly good anyway. <laughs> um silly joke that was we we can't delay it anymore we've got an epic guest really epic guest i absolutely adored this interview i i i learned so much and i was so so excited to go off and do some caving that uh, uh, uh julio who's our who's our guest
0: uh, so our guest is uh, from ESA, uh, Loredana Bessone. She's the head of uh, Analog Field Testing and Exploration Training Unit at the European Space Agency. What does this mean? She designs the, and, and executes the trainings for the astronauts. She can, she can take astronauts to caves for multiple days and, and put them to the test to see if they have what it takes. Um, she's a, by the way, she's a colleague of Hervé Stevenin that you interviewed back in episode 69. I tried to guess the episode during the interview. I completely <laughs> failed. I went to check after. I think I saved episode 40 something. Um, not bad. Loredana, bad. Loredana comes from a background in IT, but over her career, she, uh, she has really moved into this whole area of uh, astronaut training and analog, um, analog uh, design and 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 preparation of this of of these training courses for astronauts, very very successfully. Uh, during the interview, we mostly go into uh, the training program that uh, called caves. And what are the odds? What are the odds that the acronym is caves for a training that happens in caves? It's
2: extraordinary, isn't because it? Because
0: caves is not because. <laughs> It's, it's, it always amazes me it, because actually CAVES does not stand because of the CAVES. It's actually an acronym that stands for Cooperative Adventure for Valuing and Exercising Human Behavior and Performance Skills. So what were the odds that you end up with an acronym CAVES for a training that, that with all this meaning for a training that actually happens in a CAVE?
2: Acronyms are very much Jamie's favourite. He loved a good acronym. And this is definitely a good acronym. It, now, let, t- tell me, is NEMO?
0: NASA Extreme Environment Missions Operations.
2: There we go. And it's underwater. And NEMO, of course, yeah, feels like it's something from underwater because of... For Captain NEMO, of course. Captain yes. NEMO, yeah. Or yeah. the film NEMO. Spelt differently. Uh, well, and, but okay, uh, but come on, Matt. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously, Nemo, Nemo's named Nemo after Captain Disney Nemo. Based, uh, yes, <laughs> but <laughs> I wasn't trying to suggest otherwise. Uh,
0: 20,000 <laughs> 20, Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Byrne, Yes, Twenty I by, think, by Dory. I think, I think that Jules Byrne was before Disney. I, I, I will take that guess.
2: So, do you think yeah. next, the NASA's next sort of underwater analog will be called Dory? <laughs> do you know what? I actually wish. That everyone could do caves. It seems like such a brilliant way of training people to sort of be cooperative with one another. It's it's just it's brilliant. It's 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 really really cool. I, if I wanna... we could
0: put the whole world through caves, do you think we would end up with a better planet? I think yeah, but they should put world leaders. Maybe they should have before the Brexit
2: negotiations. They should have sent Boris and Angela and and, and Macron into caves altogether, so that they learnt how to get on with one another. That would have been brilliant.
0: Uh, well, I, I guess uh, in a future interview with, with Loredana, we can pass that suggestion and see if she can take uh, presidents on top of the astronauts. That'd be good, wouldn't it? Yeah. It'd well, presidents, prime ministers. Luckily, Boris isn't a president.
2: That would be yeah. too would have been, It
0: would have been good during the Cold War. Would have been. Send yeah. down
2: yeah. <laughs> Khrushchev and Kennedy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, we can we can certainly pass that <laughs> suggestion to Loredana for
2: <laughs> right. Shall for we go the s- next
0: panquevis? Let's go to the interview. Let, let's
2: go to the, the Akute. The interplanetary podcast is
0: alive.
2: Welcome to the podcast. Can you give us an overview of the major analog projects that you're involved with over at ESA?
1: Sure. Well, I, I am directly involved into the. CAVES and Pangea Analog Program, which are actually mine. Uh, I've been involved also in in NASA NEMO. Um, There there are various that are uh, being selected for training astronauts in analog environment. The major ones, really, the ones that also the astronauts like more are because they are more operational are NEMO, which is a a training that uh, astronauts from all space agencies Mostly um, astronauts from NASA, uh, but also ESA, uh, Canada and JAXA are invited to, uh, which is an underwater aquarium which is very similar to a space station uh, underwater, and uh, similarities because it uh, requires uh, astronauts to be uh, living in, in, uh, in this uh, underwater station, which is like a, a space station, and then go out in uh, uh, EVA, uh, in saturation diving, so they cannot really go to the surface. So it's very similar to a space mission, and they do technology testing there. Uh, caves. Uh, CASE is is one that uh, we created in ESA a few years ago. And uh, we take astronauts in CASE as a science explorer uh, for a one-week expedition in a relevant crew. We had uh, astronauts and cosmonauts from all space agencies. This is really unique because uh, no other agencies had all the different space agencies, including Chinese, participating. And this is a scientific exploration into for the astronauts uncharted ter- territory, where they have to map, uh, perform scientific experiments and work together as a team with different roles and responsibilities. Pangea is slightly different. Pangea is much more a technical objective or a scientific objective because it prepares astronauts to become like the new uh, Jack Smith, uh, Apollo astronauts that uh, will have to go to the moon firstly, but also to Mars in the future and become... Um, explorers uh, scientific explorers geologists that will need to discuss with the geologists on the ground and select the best possible samples to return
2: the one question that always springs to my mind is that there isn't any kind of solid actual exploration programs on the calendar as it were so when you're doing these analogs is it more to learn about the actual exploring or is it more about training the actual astronauts that are that you've actually got at the time to be able to do the exploration. So, which way round is it, or is it both, or what's it veered towards?
1: It depends. Uh, it depends on the program, first of all. So, Nemo as is, uh, is, is was born more as a technology. Uh, testing program that uh, has less to do with uh, actual astronauts training. But what they did, which was very clever, was they tried implementing uh, ISS-like operations. So they were able to to also have astronauts training in performing uh, EVA-like activities during NEMO. Um, CAVES is very different. Uh, And CAVES is, uh, is training astronauts as behavioral teams. The real objective is training them to be very effective and save teams in very risky environments. So that was born with totally different objectives. However, in order to make it very realistic, we also included a very real scientific program and it's real exploration because they have to go into uncharted areas, they have to create the chart, they have to document the system. So, they are really learning how to explore, something that y- they usually don't do. For Pangaea, we, for example, have a parallel program, which is called the Pangaea Extension, where we do also operational, scientific, and technological testing. So, we are also doing it, but Pangaea has a main focus, training astronauts to become geologists. So, this, each one of them has different objectives, and due to the characteristics of the analog, does best one of the or the other of the elements of, of this different as aspe- cover one of the different aspects.
0: I was wondering how um, a little bit of the of the history of these analog types of training. How do they originate? Why do we do them? What is the connection between the these analog trainings that you lead and the big view of Let's start with European space exploration. And then how does this also connect to things like the Gateway, for instance?
1: The original reason why why these programs were created, uh, I am thinking about uh, NOLS, which is a different one that NASA has, um, is that if you want, in the past, the Russians had the Mir space station, uh, the Americans had the shuttle, and the shuttle was a very short-term flight. The Russians were running long-term flights, but they had crews and backup crews that were formed for years. So these people knew each other, spoke the same language, had the same culture, created a common culture. And if one could not fly, they would replace the crew. So these people were really prepared to work together for a long time. Then there was the Mir program. And uh, the NASA Mir program suddenly put some NASA astronauts on space. And if you, if you think about the experience of, of Taggart, that was a, an awful experience. This guy went up for three months. He didn't speak the language. He was isolated. He couldn't speak with his peers. So, and he hated the whole experience. There was a different approach by Shannon Lucid, because when she went, she actually learned Russian. They had already made a very good uh, scientific program for her. And she could already speak with her peers. So there was a totally different setup. But they realized, damn, it's not so easy. So you need to, cr- to form the crew. You need to enable them to work together. And the culture, diff- the cultural difference is you need to actually try to mangle, to, to, to smooth the different uh, angles. And you need to address things that, I mean, they're astronauts, they are good, but still, they will need to actually work effectively together. So originally, these programs were formed as behavioral training programs. And it's not easy to find a behavioral, an environment that is suitable to do this because usually you either have to stay a long time in isolation or you have to modulate the stress in such a way that uh, even people that are usually like astronauts, very operationally resilient are still feeling humbled by the environment and feel the alien environment and need to actually be confronted with stresses that in five, six days become unbearable unless you're really, really good at handling it as a team.
0: I was wondering, when when you mentioned the the, the experience between the Americans and the Russians, do our astronauts have some uh, advantage by being European, being constantly exposed to an international environment, in particular here at ESA? Do they have an an advantage compared to, let's say, other astronauts?
1: Well, obviously, you have an advantage by being exposed to more cultures naturally, because uh, you, you always have to work in a different language than your own. Um, and you have to adapt to being part of a community, which is the ISA community, which is formed by 20 plus nationalities. So that obviously is an advantage. but it's also an advantage being in Europe because you I mean you, very recently we have the same money, but we've had different money. We have different governments, we have different languages, we have also very different cultures. And there, are, there is one more thing that obviously we are not NASA. Uh, and we are not Russia. We don't have the same space history, so we are much more humble. And that is uh, definitely a good factor. However, on the other side, you have Europeans that being the astronaut representing one country are not humble at all because they are heroes in their countries. While at NASA, astronauts are many. Same in Russia, so they're humbled by the fact they are not uh, any more heroes or not at the same level, if you want, or don't have the same level of leverage on their own uh, government, if you want. So there are different uh, different aspects that play in there, but usually, in any case, all astronauts um, have shared the fact that they have been selected from a very large uh, number of, of uh, uh possible candidates, that they're exposed to a lot of opportunities for learning, they're exposed to a lot of opportunities for testing their own operational resilience. So I think they're forming a special culture within their own extended team of international astronauts that leverages all those into a much more astronaut-belonging culture, I believe.
2: That actually leads on to one of my questions, which was about... That obviously, uh, all these all these astronauts taking part in these analogues, particularly caves, it's a long time after their selection. So when they go into, into these programs, presumably you're not sort of testing them further about their suitability to be astronauts. This is really just about training. Or is there a time where actually it reveals certain things that weren't picked up in astronaut selection and actually might put that astronaut at risk of being deselected, if you see what I mean?
1: Caves is a training program. So I refuse to report anything about what happens in caves because uh, it needs to be a really open opportunities uh, for everybody to make mistakes because you learn a lot from mistakes. It's very valuable to expose yourself to uh, bringing your own experiences to the limit, uh, trying to understand where are you are more resilient? Why you are more resilient? And being able to also test different styles of leadership or communication. So. CAVES is not at all an assessment or selection, but it offers an opportunity for the crew to assess themselves, to reflect on themselves. And I force that reflection on the teams, because I want them to learn from each other. I want to learn from themselves, but also from each other, because some of the the participants also have already flown before. And they bring a lot into the briefings about what are the similarities? What are the learning that they can transfer into their spaceflight experience that they learn into this specific experience of being at caves?
2: So does does that actually, do you generate kind of management techniques on the fly so that these, these like high, highly capable individuals will will come up with ways of coping and ways of doing things? As, do you actually get spin-off from that? element of it where it's things that that, as someone like me for example could read about it and say wow that's a that's a really good management technique or that's a really good way of handling those type of situations is there that type of spin-off
1: actually caves is built uh based on a competency model that uh, i I pushed a lot and we developed internationally and it's based on non-technical skills which are uh, derived also from the aviation industry from operational environments so the competency model is based on communication on uh, leadership uh, uh, decision making Programs, programs solve it. Uh, cross-cultural uh, uh, sensitivity, um, self-care, self-management. So there is a series of competencies. and I actually built a, a previous program that uh, that is a, a behavioral training program that where I trained all the European astronauts on, and this is the basis. So they they can test those techniques in their real environment in caves, but in caves I'm not I'm not training them on that. I reinforce them. I reinforce them because there are some specific, um, I mean, I translate the non-technical skills into technical skills. For example, the fact that when you are getting onto a rope, you have to actually say, say announce what you're doing. Like you're saying like, okay, um, I'm going to come up now. This is called in non-technical skills, communicating intentions before taking actions, because you're allowing the person that follows you or precedes you to actually prepare and do something which is in sync with what you're doing rather than against it. It's the same thing that when you're putting the the, um, the indicator light in your car before you're turning, you're indicating that you're announcing your intention before taking action. So all these behavioral skills are translated into specific technical skills in the environment and taught by the technical people uh, in a very, uh, well, untransparent way because they don't notice. But this is reinforcing what they already know from previous training and what if they have an issue in one of those uh, behaviors, it will be discussed either in a debriefing because I force them to have behavioral debriefings every day or by me directly with them is a feedback that can happen if it's really harsh during the, the, the execution operations or at the end of the course as a peer feedback by the others or by myself.
0: Loredana, if I read correctly, you are the designer of the caves course, so you are involved from day one on this, right?
1: Not alone, eh? not alone, because it's, it's no, it has course. a lot of facets and it has a lot of elements. I, let's say I'm 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 the mastermind behind it, though. Yes,
0: I can imagine that behind any of these programs, that there are always very important teams, of course. But what was interesting to me was what goes behind the the, the the whole designing process for these types of courses? Because I can assume that you're designing this for astronauts who well, I can assume they are very demanding customers between, uh, if you know what I mean. So what is the level of effort? What goes behind? How th- does this all happen to, to design these things?
1: Okay, there is there are different things. First of all, I'm also uh, a, in, I've been bringing into ISA the instructional training course that forms all the instructors. So I also designed pretty much, I, I gave the, the, the overall um, process of system engineering of training. So I'm, I'm pretty much, we are system engineering training. So there are different phases of the training. You analyze the situation because training is in fact the shortest distance between where you are and where you need to be, which is a, uh, knowledge-wise, it's uh, um, practice-wise, and also behavioral-wise. So you have different aspects of it. And you need to see where people are, so you really look at the audience, where they are. But you also have to analyze their jobs. Where do they need to be? And then you select what needs to be, I mean, where they need to be, and then you create what are training objectives. Then you have to group those training objectives into different types of units, that then you can implement in the best possible environment or with the best possible methods. And there are different ones. So some could be seminars, could be case studies, could be role plays, could be really putting them in, immersing them into a specific simulation. So this is the general system engineering that goes behind. But then there is the specific of how do you find the exact environment? And this is, this for case was very complicated because I was tasked to create a course that would uh, uh, enable astronauts to overcome the cultural difficulties. And when I'm talking culturals, I'm not talking about uh, the national culture, but I'm talking about educational, about organizational. I mean, some are military, some are, are pilots, some are scientists, uh, some are engineers. So there is a lot of different cultures that for, that need to be mingled in and created into a new uh, culture that also has some methods for taking decision or for leadership or communication, which are accepted and effective by the old team. So I was tasked to do that. And I started looking around and I saw that, uh, well, aviation was uh, doing crew resource management, that the military was doing operational type of training in the field. And I tried to put both together. And then we created a course that was a, a sort of uh, survival course that was Pre- preceded by a few seminars that were handled by uh, psychologists and, and, uh, and pilots. And then I realized when I did it that it didn't give me what I needed. I needed an environment that was much more creating stress and bringing astronauts to a humble level and had much more similarity in terms of scientific work, but also team activities and technical activities. And, uh, well, we tried a cave and when I when I when when I sent that my psychologist into the case, she say like fantastic environment. Try it. So we tried, and when I went in, I saw the environment is correct, but then it was not enough. The environment was just uh, the the texture, and on it you needed to actually build a mission. You needed to build a scientific program. You needed to build the the behavioral elements of, of it. You needed to make sure that there were similarity also in the training. So I. Spent, I mean, I, I did a spiological course. I spent two years trying to go through all possible spirological training at different levels, trying to find the right scientists, the light explorers. And then I pulled them together and then we looked for caves that were enabling us to do those things. And then we started, we started the process, but then we never stop. I mean, we keep actually evolving and changing the environment or the cave or or what we teach or what we add or the scientific program to tailor it, to make sure that it's refined to really achieve the final objective, which is we need to focus on making sure that these people have something which is very relevant for them and helps them becoming better teams.
2: It's extraordinary, isn't it? Because the one thing that's just occurred to me really is that you're training people for a job that you only ever get to do very very rarely in in some ways the 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 astronaut job and the one the one element that used that's come up a few times because I've interviewed people who've been on the on the Mars 500 and things like that where where these long analogs and I I always thought to myself one of the elements that's always missing which you would have thought would be the biggest psychological element is that risk of danger an actual actual peril so can you tell us a little bit more about that because that seems like that is actually involved with caves
1: absolutely and this is exactly where i'm i'm all i've always been very critical of isolation studies that don't have the element of risk i've also been training for 10 years the concordia antarctic uh, it's concordia is a a french uh, Italy Italo French base in Antarctica, uh, which also has elements of, of mixed cultures, and, and the winter overwinter teams spend one year, of which nine is in complete isolation. So I've been training them also on as teams. And there you have the risk, but it changes totally your interaction, your perception of of the whole situation. So case is the in case like in Nemo also, the risk is real, like in space, you make a mistake. You have consequences and that forces you to think thoroughly about everything you did technically, scientifically, but also, uh, behaviorally, because you need to take care of your whole team in a totally different way. So your perception, of course, you're, uh, it, it, there is a consequence also in being closed in, into, into an environment where you know that there is a psychological pressure of not giving up, but still, you know, you're not going to die. And there is a completely different effect if you know that if you only twist your, your your ankle, you can't go out of a cave by yourself. It will take a few days until you're taken out, and this is this gives you a completely different perspective about uh, what you can do if they can, because you could even actually hurt yourself such that you you cannot even go out. So that that is very very important. So that element, the reality of risk, is uh, making it very acceptable. And wanted by the astronauts because they're usually really protected a lot in their in their uh, life on Earth. On the other hand, it makes my life very complex because I hate the whole time in which I'm there, hoping it ends uh, uh, soon. I mean, I, I enjoy it, but at the same time, the moment when everything is finished, including all the logistics where everybody's out of the cave and everything is closed, then I finally am very, very happy because uh, because every time I could kill people.
0: <laughs> it, yeah. it's, it's very, it's very interesting that you spend years preparing for one of these missions, and when the mission starts, you want it to be over <laughs> as soon as possible.
1: Well, it's not exactly that because I enjoy going through it, but I'm always very tense because obviously anybody could hurt themselves in and there, and, and the risk is, is life. So,
2: how, how on earth do you persuade? All the other space agencies to be involved with it, with because it. presumably that you you have to sort of confront them and say, oh, by the way, you know your multi-million dollar asset, your NASA astronaut, we're going to put him in a cave. So how, how does that how does that work?
1: I must admit it was not easy at the beginning because uh, I spent a few years trying to. I mean, first of all, from 2004 to 2000. Uh, seven or eight, Uh, I developed together with the international partners uh, the competency model And in there, I was was also promoting what we were doing. So in 2008, I first announced CASE and everybody was very skeptical about it. Nobody really understood the analogies or nobody wanted to believe it. And obviously it was very risky. Uh, We we proposed it in 2009 and there was nobody wanted to come. And then in 2010, I organized a survival training for the European astronauts. So we, we skipped the year. And then in 2011, we tried to put the call out again. And the moment when NASA said yes, then all the others said yes too. Uh, like, like the Canadians and the Japanese, because the the, the Russians would come any, hey, because, anyway because risk is normal and they accepted. But NASA sent one very uh, critical astronaut that is known to be hypercritical, uh, Randy Bresnik. I was scared like hell. But when we, I mean, he was positive throughout, but when we came out, I, I had my boss coming in for the for the debriefing. And he looked at my boss and say like, and he was a Navy, Navy SEAL. So he's a Navy SEAL. So it's like, uh, he came to my boss and say like, she run a very tight ship. And he went back and say to NASA, this course needs to go because this is a most fantastic course for us to be prepared because it tackles all the important things. It has a lot of analogies. Since then it was gone because the astronauts are, I mean, they're queuing to participate. I I sincerely have a lot of people who want to participate in this course. They would want for me to do it three times a year to be able to run it for everybody because they know it's valuable for them. Uh, In the debriefing, they always tell us that this is one of the best, if not the best course they have done to prepare them for space flight. So I think it was difficult. We still have to run a very tight um, revision of our readiness because we do training readiness reviews always to prove that we are ready and everything is prepared and and we have to document the whole thing but by now we're trusted
2: is there a memorable moment where you've gone ah oh, this is absolutely fantastic and and is there a a moment where actually you really have been extremely stressed is that does that happen or or has, or has it just gone along in a kind of medium all along
1: well, let's say that uh, the astronauts don't realize the level of stress we have because uh, everything needs to run very smoothly. I mean, we have to run to the quarter of an hour to make sure that things are running smoothly because we have to go into different cases. Everything, the logistics have to be prepared. We have, <laughs> we run. When we prepare the schedule, we also have the personnel preparation schedule. It's it's an it's enormous uh, burden to have everything running. So usually we are stressed all throughout to make sure that things happen. Um, the most memorable memorable in terms of positive, uh, I would say always, which it's always happened. And this is like, it's been very fantastic that, and we didn't plan for it, but every year the astronauts arrived into a fantastic location as the last location they, I mean, the farther, Place ahead they would go into that year of exploration. And they took a fantastic picture, which is in their memory, is like reminding them of what they have achieved. It's always very memorable because for some reason, they always achieved a fantastic location every year, which is good. Um, I would say that uh, the worst, and this is very sad, we, we had concluded uh, the, the course in 2014 and we were helped by a local caving club in uh, bringing out equipment. And in 2014, one of the caving club members, who was also a rescue uh, a caver, and a very experienced one in that cave, he actually slipped and he, he failed to actually attach himself to a safety rope. Um uh, for whatever reason, because they, they were not used to 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 follow this strict protocol and he actually died. And this was, uh, we organized the rescue with our team and it was a very, very sad moment, which could also have been the, the end of case. However, we had a, an investigation from the office of the investigator uh, general in isa they uh, they investigated the whole thing and they realized that we had done everything we could but then we also changed our our uh, the way we work by imposing uh, safety rules also on the on every single support personnel no matter how experienced they are um, and we stopped involving uh, volunteers because uh, because that I mean, we couldn't control uh, their work environment and, and we had to. So uh, it was a very, very sad moment. But we learned that safety is a duty, but it's also a right.
0: Yeah, I can imagine that after every tra- tragedy like this, you, uh, you learn and, and you implement changes to, to, to try to minimize the risk in the future. Of course, the risk never goes away, right?
1: Uh, the risk, I mean, can only be minimized. You, ca- you cannot eliminate risk. And, and it's also one of the elements of CAVES. We want risk to be there because it, it is part of the learning.
0: Talking about risks, um, NEMO, um, which is the underwater EBA type of training you described before, has that component of underwater and that risk uh, that you could suffer decompression sickness if you escape at that moment. Then we have caves. Have you guys considered uh, diving uh, while inside a cave? So a cave diving, I understand yeah. it's one of the riskiest yes, things. Yes, but it,
1: it wouldn't make sense because, you, I mean, in, in Nemo, you dive, but you actually are communicating with the others. You're going out for an EVA, you're living underwater. So the component, which is very valuable in, in, in Nemo, is that you're living underwater and you, do, you have to do a saturation protocol. Uh, I mean, you have to dive with protocols. And this is, is sort of making it similar to space. Plus, But you're continuously communicating and you have a lot of teamwork because you live and work with the others. Cave diving, I mean, you either go in a very simple environment, but then you cannot really do a lot of science because you are pretty much only focused on your equipment. And then you're on your own because there is a lot of logistics, but I mean... You're you you you're not talking to people. You're pretty much going around. So the value of case is the fact that it forces you to work in a team. It, you continuously have to explore with others. You're continuously confronted with problem solving and, and decision making as a team, not as an individual. So it wouldn't have the same value for me. Plus, you increase the risk enormously because now you're in an environment where you have both the issues of the equipment failure being something that is very likely. And you have people that are new because still, even if all the astronauts are divers, they are not cave divers. So you would need to train them on cave diving protocols which is much more complex than the standard diving protocol. You would need to use a, a third of your tank before you come back. I mean, all these protocols you have to. And then in addition to that, you have the fact that usually uh, when you have cave diving, you have people going for rescue, mostly to take out dead bodies. And I don't want that, sincerely. I mean, re- imagine, I, I need to have a rescue team at hand, always when I have the astronauts in the cave. But I would have to have the the, the best cave diver rescue in the world out there, which are very few. I mean, there are not a lot of cave diving rescue people that would be able to give that so i think the whole thing would be really impossible to to put together and and to me it also wouldn't make any sense i think I, Nemo I think has its, its clear own. That you
0: have done a lot of thinking on this
1: <laughs> oh yes I, I have i mean yeah. I, I tell you i mean i the japanese were asking me i mean you've done everything i mean we have underwater you have you have uh under under underground what could we do to have a, a behavioral training program and i say like saving to me, sailing is a natural one that you can still develop because you can live together in a boat for a certain amount of time, and you could do actually some research or some technology uh, verification. You can still go diving, so that would make a lot of sense. That's a totally new one. I I know what would work on wood, wouldn't by ha- but wouldn't by having really done a lot of thinking about what are the environment and the characteristics of what you want to do. But cave diving, really, it's to me, it would be just a, a stunt
2: do do, okay. do
1: a lot of those
2: do a lot of the protocols and management things come you mentioned sailing and and I a book I read a long time ago was was by Shackleton and obviously Shackleton it, that book's amazing more less about the sort of survival bit but more about his management of how he keeps the team together Does, does do a lot of those sort of the sailor years does it have a lot of that sort of permeated into the work that you've done
1: Absolutely, and and the the behavioral training program I was talking about is the elements, and CASE was built as a behavioral training program. I mean, all this, what we call soft skills, are permeating everything you do. And uh, when I do my seminars, even for ground control teams or for this Concordia people, people tell me like, you know what, I learned something that can help me in everyday life. It's not just about my professional life, because it's true. There are a lot of things that you have been trained to do properly and you're trained to the limit and astronauts are trained to the limit, but there is always the unknown. And in the unknown, what really saves your life or would make you be a success factor is the fact that you know how to have very, very effective behaviors. And those behaviors are observable and are trainable. There are methods to improve and once you have those methods and once you know how to behave in a certain moment and how to best deal with your team you have it it needs to become a habit
2: how how does that translate across language barriers and things like that so because you've got japanese russians americans europeans all on these in the, in the caves together. And, and so, how do they overcome the, the language, the, the necessary language barriers? Or, or is there a common language that they use?
1: First of all, the, all astronauts and cosmonauts need to speak English and Russian because their vehicles have commands in English and Russian. So, they, that's already been sorted out during the basic training for me. Uh, however, I, I of course, there are different levels. And when you start talking about uh, behavioral issues, there is it's not easy. And uh, now I'm going to a different environment. I'm talking about the Concordia because that for me was much more challenging. With astronauts, it's not as challenging because they are trained on languages. But when I trained the, the Concordia people, I had people that were uh, technicians, French or Italian, and didn't speak the other language. Sometimes you had the medical doctor or the commander, not being able to speak the language of of his people. And that caused me a lot of troubles. When I did my seminars, I did them in three languages, English, French, and Italian. And I kept translating to make sure that I was addressing everybody and they all understood what the issue was and sometimes I was even making them doing matrices of who should actually rely on whom to make sure that they could be able to pass messages in an emergency because that's very important but for astronauts it's not such a big deal because they might they have different levels of English speaking obviously but uh, they still have uh, enough to be able to work effectively
2: and is that that, that's the same for the Japanese as well I did which I didn't know (laughs)
1: Yeah, I mean it, it's it's uh, it is the same for everybody because everybody needs to learn English and Russian. I mean, I think the ones that learn Russian <laughs> worse are the are the English speaking usually. <laughs> that's but that's natural because you're not I mean you don't need to usually oh, everybody know, speaks your language. I, I, I mean this is it's a
2: permanent sense of guilt I have about not learning foreign languages. <laughs> so
1: at the end anyhow everybody speaks uh, English, and I hear them from time to time going and speaking Russian. Um, When I had the Chinese participating, English was the language because uh, he wouldn't be able to speak Russian. So, but they, they, I mean, they communicate in English most of their time because that is their natural language. Uh, And if they have, I mean, everybody even the Americans uh, learn to adjust (laughs) because of course you're, you're used to the fact that you're, you're always dealing with people that are not at your level of language, but they're not stupid. They are just, sometimes they don't grasp the the subtleties. So you have to sometimes be, uh, be patient, but that is also part of what they need to learn. If you spend six months for somebody else with somebody else, you better be patient.
2: Yeah. I mean, it, Presumably with languages, there's one thing learning sort of the technical Russian for flying a a Soyuz, uh, but there's another when it comes to the sort of almost colloquialisms of stress and and anger and all those kind of uh, words that might come in at that point. So how do you deal with things like that?
1: I think that there is one thing that what I was mentioning before the Russians when they prepared their cruise they were making sure that they were spending a lot of free time together that is a, a, a clue too because if you know somebody and if you know them well you actually don't even need the language because there are some keywords that will just everybody in that team will understand so sometimes for example I in 2011 they decided that uh, their their uh, they had a, their motto had included a snake. So I kept hearing them speaking about the snake. I didn't know what it was, but they created that as a team. So their team knew what it meant because they had a joke running joke throughout. And this is a special language. And I think these exercises, Allowed the teams to create that special language where by just looking at each other or saying that special word, everybody will understand and only that team will understand. So,
2: so that's what you meant by the culture that they're creating internally, yeah.
1: Exactly. It's it's a specific culture of that team, but it's also a culture that goes across the various the astronaut corps because they do share a lot with each other and they do spend uh, free time with each other and by those occasions they actually create an opportunity to to actually create this this sort of culture in case they also create it with the with the explorers and this is a fantastic uh, this is fantastic because after they go out for pace uh, they they have they become uh, facebook friends they they start planning uh, expeditions together and this is also a, a sort of like uh, uh, it is it, a, a, a double an effect that, that that is created that is pretty much uh, not planned but uh, but very very efficient but very very nice to see too.
2: Yeah, so there must be like memes sort of that that come out of these cave expeditions that sort of almost spread like viruses amongst the astro- astronaut community.
1: Yeah, it's a uh, so. Three of the of the astronauts cosmonauts in space, two cosmonauts and one astronaut are actually uh, were, were in 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 case before, um, and it's it's funny that sometimes when they are in their in in space i receive like photos uh, like of people being together and say ah we're here we and we, they talk about that but most of the memes that they actually create are like related to the activities that they do together and that uh, will relate to each other and learning from past experiences
0: i have the impression that caves was originated in a sort of iss related era as support to iss training Pangea seems to be more geared, although I see uh, that they are not the same, obviously they are not the same thing, they are clearly different, but was Pangea thought more, it's about geology, so thought more about concrete planetary exploration with concrete plans for planetary exploration. Uh, I, obviously caves, I think some of the aspects of it, uh, or most of the aspects of it, will also translate to actual planetary exploration, Right.
1: Correct. Also, because uh, at some point, also lunar case will have to be explored, but it less. It's less direct. If you want, uh, case really was built in terms of a, as a behavioral training program that used the environment uh, and and the mission, just as a uh, as, as, as 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 sort of like a environment to be able to then be conductive of what wanted I wanted to do. That was the behavioral training. But in case one thing that uh, we learned, one thing which is. Uh, it's very easy. We're we very good at training astronauts at doing tasks, but in case we still taught them to do sampling and to find the right spot for sampling. And that is not easy because astronauts need to become scientists. It's very easy to perform a mechanical task of making, I mean, of collecting rocks. But where do you look for the best rocks? Or where do you look for the best possible microbiological samples? That is something where you need education, not training. So you need to be formed as a scientist in the field. And this is something which made me reflect on the need to actually create that level of expertise for geological and geomicrobiological sampling on other planets. That I I took the occasion that uh, in the last basic training, we had missed geological training to try to propose that instead of just doing an introductory geological training, we actually created a geological field training exercise for planetary purposes in order to prepare the future lunar explorers. And uh, I must admit that I had a lot of resistance from my management. However, then Artemis came out. And we were just there on time. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, spot of good news. So they're doing—they're out there doing science experiments. So, so you've, you've got to keep them busy down in the caves. Have they actually ever made any actual discoveries while they're down there? Oh
1: yes, oh yes. They uh, there are minor discoveries uh, always, but uh, but a major one was uh, two major ones were in two 2000- thousand. Twelve and two thousand thirteen, when they discovered a new species for science, and a new species for the cave, and this is fantastic. Uh, so it's it's like they they are totally inexperienced people, uh, and it was even difficult. In fact, <laughs> it was, well, it's very funny because um, because uh, it's I say it's difficult to train them on where to look and what to look for, but since I'm participating every year, in two thousand fourteen we had two pilots that were decided to assign themselves as scientists. And they, I mean, it was so difficult for them to find bugs, but I would spot them easily. So from time to time, I would just turn around and say, bug, and they would just look <laughs> at me and say like, did you actually put it there? And I was like, no, seriously, it's just—it's obvious. There is water, and I was trying to explain to them, like, look at the environment. And say, like, I can look at the environment forever, but they would never see it. So we had a lot of fun in that because they—they they kept thinking that I had the bugs in a vial and I would put them for them. <laughs> but but you, but, I mean, we have years when we have scientists, and and uh, and. But in 2012, actually, the 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 new species. That is called by the well, um, Alpinicus. Uh, Asked, uh, uh, ast- I don't remember. But it has it, it, ah, The name was chosen because it was chosen because it was uh, selected by an astronaut. But it was actually found by an engineer. Not by scientists. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it was. uh, It was there. It's very nice. So we have a scientific publication that took forever to, because in addition to to being a new species, there apparently there were different subspecies in all the various little bugs that they found. So they had to actually use DNA to be able to to identify that there were multiple subspecies because morphologically they were uh, identical, but uh, DNA said that there were multiple subspecies. So it was very interesting for science.
2: Wow. Was there a kind of disbelief when they first found it? Like, nah, you, you you're just not seeing it properly.
1: <laughs> well, when they found it, they don't know because it takes... A lot of time afterwards for the scientists to look at so when the scientists saw it they they were very surprised because that usually that animal that uh, that type of animal in fact it's it's it used to be in water came out of water and now the species they found went back to water so it went through a cycle of, of really evolutionary cycle. So it, it was very interesting from that perspective. So that's why originally the scientists, when they saw it, were a little bit surprised and they didn't capture the fact that it was a new species immediately. But uh, but at the end, they found it afterwards. But we always keep the, the teams informed of what the previous team has found that is interesting because the, the realism, of the science that we do in case is important for participants but also for the scientists because we want the scientists to keep working with us and making a meaningful program because we want the astronauts to be interested in keeping doing it.
0: I'm looking at the I'm looking at the at, at the species now it's, it's a bug uh, and uh, the name is Alpioniscus sideralis. Sideralis. sideralis yes.
1: Yes, yes. comes yes, from Yes, absolutely. Space. Does
2: it go down as a team discovery or a individual discovery?
1: No, it goes as a team discovery. I mean, we know who has picked it up because uh, we have different roles that are assigned by the team in during case, and this is very important. The role assignment has plays a big role in, in the organization of the of the of the behavioral part of the course. Uh, but but it goes as a team discovery. Nothing at caves is individual.
0: Yeah and i have to say you have to have that as you were talking about the scientific mind uh, if i look at this i just see a bug how in the world would i know that it's an undiscovered species so if you're one of these pilots i can understand their their situation there
1: we we actually prepared the the biological sampling program by giving them a cue cards of what they if they find something similar to that if if they have to sample, how they have to sample, if they have to just count them. So we give quite good instructions on that. So uh, the scientists who prepared it were looking for specific types of, of animals that were aquatic animals at the time. Um, so they they had guidance on what to look for. But they also know if they find something that is not in the map that they have, because the scientists that prepared it with us know quite a lot of the fauna in those uh, in those caves, so they also know that it needs to look more or less like that. If it doesn't, they know it's possibly a new species. So there has been excitement also last year because they they had found something that they thought could be a new species. Um, it's still under investigation, but we think it's just a new species for the cave.
2: Do you get an opportunity to try out prototype stuff as well in any of these, any of the programs that you're running? I'm thinking of things like tools and and and, and various other things. Do, do, do you get given the prototypes and say, oh, can you check these out, whether they work or not?
1: Um, Okay, we do that specifically when we do Pangea X, for example, this is a a specific program for testing uh, protocols and tools for planetary exploration. But uh, we have developed for Pangea, uh, a tool which is uh, called the electronic field book, which is uh, a it's, it's a tablet that is also has a network, which is a, a, a safety tolerant network. A, it, it has also optical devices. It has analytical tools outside. It's a suite that supports them uh, in the exploration because it's also integrating the 3D map of the cave and allows them to pinpoint and to uh, collect science. Uh, even science data through this one and then communicate with ground. So we have developed it and they test it, but it's not for them to test. It's for them to be more efficient. So we get a lot of feedback and they give us feedback because they believe this is a good tool for them to even think about how to use this in, in, in future exploration. But our purpose is just to make their life easier easier. And more efficient because we don't want them to spend a lot of time typing or, or writing things. The objective for them is to do science, to document what they do, but not to have pain doing that. So we would we develop tools just to make them ease their life easy.
2: So have any, have any of the astronauts uh, called that
1: their tricorder yet? Yes, yes. <laughs> last year, last year, in fact, we we had them in the case we had them use the Joyful Book, and they and they all say like, okay. Uh, for for uh, the tricorder, please also do. Uh, we I have it in my debriefing. Absolutely, they they did use call it tricorder last year.
2: Yeah, yeah I mean it's it's it does seem like a
0: surprisingly
2: similar device.
1: <laughs> absolutely yes, absolutely
0: yes. I understand the last uh, the last caves was uh, performed in two thousand and nineteen, and I read now on the ISA website that the next one will be in twenty twenty one. And I was wondering if there is any uh, any interesting anecdote from the last edition uh, or some advanced uh, scoop or planning on, on the next one, uh, what, uh, what, what will be special about it? And especially, I would like to know the impact, of course, of COVID-19 and all these activities.
1: And in fact, we didn't do it this year. Uh- We had planned this year to to do Pangea first. Uh, We sometimes we do alternate alternate years Pangea and caves. They're very heavy programs, so we don't doing them both in the same year is very heavy for us because it's the same team that organizes both, and sometimes they have to do be in the same period of which is June July to September, and then a portion can be done in November because it's a in Lanzarote for Pangea. Um but uh, but uh, yes covid stopped us because uh, we couldn't have participants because nobody was allowed to fly at the time obviously. So we will we plan to do next one in 2021. We have uh this year we have not done Pangea but we have done a dry run in which we tested also covid protocols that we would have to implement. It's like a bubble obviously that you have to create around the team but for caves is much more complicated because we have a large support team, uh, and it's not easy to, to implement that bubble. So we still have, uh, quite a challenge ahead. So I, am really hopeful for, for the, for the, uh, to have, uh, vaccinations because I think that this is the only way that we'll really be able to, to implement those courses in the future without having a very, very heavy load on, on logistics, uh, obviously, uh, in terms of, uh, of, uh, well, First of all, I can't tell a lot about what is happening in caves because um, because uh, since it's a behavioral training program, I am signing a confidentiality statement that I will not tell what's happening because I want people, as I say, to experience. And we had actually people um, coming in and and facing some of their of of issues like like uh, uh, being afraid of heights. Seriously. And I mean, being afraid of heights is not good in caves and it helps you if you're if you're doing it in a controlled way or being uh, sort of not sure of doing uh, EVAs because they have been in space, but they were not confronting doing EVAs. And they were told by the others that if they have done it in caves, they can do an EVA because it's actually the same thing. Um, so there are things like that. But, uh, but uh, I mean, uh, yeah, OK, there is a. Uh, some years ago we had uh, the fir- really the first year, not last year but the first year I had uh, I had uh, taken Tim Peek uh, before we did the course to do a dry run to also check if what he thought about it and uh, Tim is a very very organized person He loves to be on time loves to be on time and I was discussing with him a few tricks that I wanted to to put in and they say like uh, you know what I decided because you you lose. the the sense of time when you're in a cave. You don't know which time it is. You're waking up at three o'clock at night. You don't know which time it is. So at the end I said, uh, I will not allow people to have a watch. And, uh, but then I changed my mind because he participated to the course in 2011. And at the time I realized that I wanted for them to implement a timeline. So I needed for them to have a watch. I gave them all a watch, but he left his own outside. And then he was always late and he couldn't wake up in the morning and he hated me. He hated me like Ellie said, you told me that you wouldn't do it. And everybody else uh, picked on him for, throughout that for Tim. But okay, there are things like that that happen all the time, obviously. Uh, small things happen all the time, uh, but mostly actually the they are having fun, uh, but I don't participate to that level of fun because I don't want to. I need to be allowing them to run their own life. And I always intervene to make sure that uh, I modulate the stress, and I assure that they are always having enough difficulties, but not too many, to be able to take the learning without being overwhelmed by that.
0: You're always on the field with with them, obviously. You give them this. Space. I
1: am on the field with them, but we have uh, the, the support team. There is a support team for safety, uh, also. But we are we having a separate campsite. We are always going with them at a distance. Other than in the difficult passages where they need to, to, we need to make sure that they are secured. And then I join them when they have to take decisions uh, because I need to make sure that they do it properly and they take everything into account. So we have some moments like the mission reporting that they do, where I'm always aware of them talking to the ground team uh, in making sure that I inject enough uh, enough issues for them, but not too many, or that uh, the issues are properly resolved. because if you're outside uh, from the cave, you don't always understand what's going on. So I need to modulate that, uh, but it needs to be an intrusive so they don't realize how much I actually interfere with them <laughs> usually.
2: <laughs> Have you... Have you thought about making a virtual version of this because this would I mean I'm sitting here thinking I so want to do I so want to do it and and I'm thinking obviously <laughs> it's I'm not going to be an astronaut anytime soon so uh, have you ever thought about doing a virtual version or a sort of gamified version because it's it sounds absolutely amazing
1: It is amazing but I think there is uh, it's it's uh, the, uh, we talked about the realism before and I think you can't really Replicate it. Of course, you can actually have a game, but it's still a game. I, I use a game. I use a, a simulator for the course that I do because I, I did. Uh, I did. I I used to do. Now it's a couple of years that I stopped doing it, but I used to run behavioral training programs for ground control team for astronauts and for Concordia people, and I use a, a computer simulation, which uh, it's very effective because it. I mean, and it's to me, it's fantastic, and I use in all training because it allows you to really teach somebody a method of communication or decision trade of decision or situational awareness. And then you can test it with that computer simulation, which is simulating you uh, being ground control team for a very weird space station. But uh, so you, but it's very well designed and you need to design it very, very well to be able for it to be effective. So every little bit of it uh, needs to be uh, tested, but for caves, I think uh, the good part of it is the, the fact that it's real.
0: And within this reality, you uh, you spend six days inside this cave, right? And nights, yes. What went and, and nights? Uh, you are obviously sleeping in the cave. Mm-hmm. Uh, what went behind the choice of the six days? Uh, why not longer? Why not shorter? There must be significance to that. Yes, right?
1: it is significant because uh, uh, very rarely. Uh, sp- speleologists, actually, that are not real explorers, spend uh, nights in caves. They might do go for a day, or for a prolonged day. Um, when we tested it the first time, we had five days, uh, and we went in and out twice. And I thought that going in and out was very disturbing because you need this isolation, this feeling of isolation. When you, when we go into the cave, we have chosen caves that bring you far away enough from the entrance to make you feel you're really isolated this (coughs) you you realize that it takes you hours to go back and if you have a problem it takes days so that feeling is very important so we chose case that bring you at the campsite far away enough Um, but then I want them to stay inside and the first year we did it five days and when people came out they were still not done meaning that they were fresh enough they could have gone farther the next year I decided to add one day and then they were ready to go I realized that they were tired, mentally and physically tired. And it's, and I it, say myself, because it, it's really the limit. And I, I didn't measure it in other ways other than in that cave with the type of activity we do, with that group, with the fact that it's new, because uh, for, for people that are not new to that, the level of stress is different. I mean, if, if you think of your diver, If you're, if you're, I don't know if, I mean, I'm, I'm, I used to be a diving instructor. So when you bring a person into open dive for the first time, they're almost stupid. I mean, they lose the ability to really take care of everything because you have so many sensations. Same thing can happen in space. Okay. Same thing. Yes. I
0: remember the first, my first dive was a completely sensory overload. Absolutely. Uh, Even on my first microgravity flight or it was my my brain my body did not know how to handle it yes. it took some time to adapt you have a yes. you
1: have a, a, an overload of sensations that your body is not able to process because you give attention to all of them while if you are used to it you start giving attention only to the important ones and you remove things like the clock uh ticking because there are things that they don't bother you anymore but you are not able to distinguish so this overload in if you go for caves exploration lasts all the time if you're a novel person. So it will go away if you go for a second time for another six days, because you already know what to take, uh, how what to eat, uh, how to, to sleep. I mean, if you know all that, the level of stress is modulated by your body by being able to absorb and, and interpret a lot of those things and be prepared. But I have this advantage of taking people in case that have never been to case before. So this is an overload, continuous overload. So therefore, when I'm stress modulating, I need to make sure that they never go beyond. So if they decide not to go ahead and do an exploration, then me and the rest of the support team, we would just go and say, like, why don't they go? I need to allow them because there is this overload. And six days is pretty much the, the amount of time that I realize allows them to still go out in safety still wanting to do a little bit but already wanted to get out
2: so so doesn't that worry you when it comes to something like a mars mission where after 6 days you've still got another <laughs> still got another 300 to go before you you can leave and and come back is, it is- depends
1: it depends i mean it's it's also depending on it depends on how you plan your evas because again we're going in eva every day for Eight hours. So you're constantly, constantly needing to. Uh, in, you spend time in the evening having to uh, take care of your equipment, preparing the experiment for the next day, looking at the timeline, communicating with ground, talking to your peers. You never have a moment of rest. In I, I mean, in ISS, you never go out in EVA every day. Uh, in if you go for a Mars mission, usually it's planned that you never go out in EVA for two subsequent days because they are very, very heavy. So if you do a long-term mission. You modulate how much work you do. There is a difference between, in the shuttle, they had like uh, shifts, the blue shift and the red shift. They always worked. In MIR uh, and in ISS, they worked during normal working hours, but they have... A few hours free in the evening and on the morning, and you have your weekends free because it's important. So you modulate the amount of workload depending on what you need to do. For me, the modulation is I hammer them, I hammer them, I hammer them for six days because I want that to be hammered because I need efficiency in the course. I cannot keep them there for 14 days because it would also not, I mean, it would also cost much more of their time. For me, I can modulate it, and with the level of, of activities that I give them, with the amount of time that they spend in EVA and with the amount of work that I distribute in the team, if there are six people or five people, I can actually achieve that in six days. So there is a lot of thinking going in there, obviously.
2: Uh, I don't know whether I'm being silly here, but it's the reason why we have a, a seven-day week. <laughs> actually, to do with this whole idea that really, as humans, we need to have these kind of pauses in between I I didn't actually think of it before I don't know if either of you know the answer
1: I, I can't. I mean, I didn't plan the f- the seven days week actually, but uh, I mean, I, I know that in in it, it depends on what you're doing. That I mean, it depends on a lot mm-hmm. of elements. It depends also on how new you are to the environment. Obviously, we're not new to the mm-hmm. environment we're living in, but there are a lot of elements that that play with it. But you have to be very attentive because your team needs to still be safe enough on doing what what they do, and that's why for me it's now six days. Uh, five, it's too little. Seven would be too much <laughs> with the current conditions.
2: Uh, a quick one, which I, I was told I needed to ask you about, was was when you gave EVA training in front of Buzz Aldrin.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, not EVA training, but I some years ago, I was asked by c Space. It's uh, it's an association to which uh, actually I'm um, here. There is uh, the, there is somebody who's who's part of it currently, right? Julio, <laughs> oh yes, um, but I was invited. That would be me. Yes, yes, I was invited to to give a presentation. They uh, and I think Julio can can tell much much more about this uh, association. I mean, I was invited to give a presentation. I had the opportunity to travel with them to Malta, and uh, I mean, and Comino, it was fantastic. Uh, I had uh, I could do uh, diving with them and uh but i gave i mean i i, I gave them a choice of, of what i could present because at the time i was involved in the human mars mission studies for isa and they decided that they wanted me to to give them a, a presentation of the work that we have done in isa because I, I we prepared a, an eva pre-familiarization training program um with the isa neutral buoyancy facility and while doing that we actually worked with nasa and uh, ervestevan and my colleague and myself a colleague and myself we were going into the into the suit the eva suit uh, we trained in the neutral buoyancy facility for nasa and then when i came back i decided that i wanted to try and explain somebody how to move without fighting the suit that was a whole very strange concept so they said that they were interested in me explaining that so how i came out to that but in giving this presentation, I, I didn't think about uh, who was there. So I prepared a presentation. And then when I came there, suddenly I had Buzz Aldrin and Scott Carpenter in my presentation. And I was like, damn, I'm giving a presentation about training on EVAs with somebody who's been on a lunar and on a uh, actually microgravity EVA. And I, I was like, what am I doing here? still it went very well and i actually had them even uh, at the end it was uh, it was uh, i he, he actually bus asked some questions that were very actually interesting but then it was funny because i tried to explain to everybody that doing an eva with with the pressurized gloves means that you have to pretty much like squeeze balls for 8 hours and there was a total laughter in the room and then for 15 minutes i couldn't say anything because everybody th- Thought that EVAs were squeezing balls, so it's like, it was. I was, but 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 Buzz actually concurred on what I was saying that it was really realistic the way I was explaining it. But it was it was really. I, I felt I felt very very embarrassed. On the other hand, I mean, it went well, so I, I was I was happy at the end that uh, that I did it too. That's another thing that I was very happy that I was over with it.
0: Amai- by the way, for our for our listeners, um, you just mentioned Hervé. And uh, Matt did a brilliant brilliant interview with him a long, long time ago. Yeah, a couple of uh, years ago. Where we go and he goes in details on all this EVA training and buoyancy facility at ESA. So those that want to go back into the archive, I highly recommend. Ah, oh, nice. Good work. <laughs> good work, Julio. <laughs> um, I think, I even, I even think it's episode 48. Oh, wow. But Tom, wow. I'm, wow.
2: I'm, okay. I'm not even wow, sure. Wow,
1: what a good memory.
2: If you could bring back a hero from the past to sort of look at your work and to see what you are doing, who would it be?
1: If I have to bring back somebody from the past, I would say Alfonso Vinci. Alfonso Vinci is uh, an explorer that uh, I I read a a book about his biography uh, a couple of years ago um, that is called uh, Living As If You Were Eternal. And it's uh, he actually was an explorer, a mountaineer, but an explorer of uh, spent a lot of years in South America, uh, spent a lot of years with local people, a real explorer, somebody that had the real feeling of exploration because he went to learn with a lot of curiosity. He wanted to learn from nature and from people that really lived in nature. And he went through amazing adventures. Uh, it was was able to live with people that usually would kill anybody that would go close to them but i mean it's uh, to me it was a fantastic person who never had a house because <laughs> uh, for him everywhere was his house so I, I i mean yes i would want to talk to him i would want for him to to give me some hints on how to create explorers because i think he was a real real explorer
2: yeah, sounds amazing. I might, I might seek out
0: that book. Sounds brilliant. I love, I, I love exploration books.
1: It may be only Italian, but uh, yeah.
0: Loredana, to to conclude and and uh, thank you for your time. We we have um, our final question um, to our guests is always, uh, what is your favorite space song? Uh, <laughs> Lorelana, yeah. Uh, however, I, I it, when I was thinking about this question, um, I was wondering what's the relationship between music and caves. Do you guys take music with you?
1: Interesting. We, we had one year, we had one team bringing in an iPad and they were running music on it. And it was obscene because a cave is, a, I mean, in caves there are no noises. You pretty much have a silence. Other than some. sometimes you have some drops or some very far away noises. And this is amazing. I mean, when I go to caves every year that I go to caves, I forget that there is an outside world. Totally forget. Lately, since we have implemented some mission support, we also had to have internet in the cave. And I hate it because it allows me to talk, to see that there is an outside world. But usually it's fantastic to totally cat and the silence is a big part of it actually it's, i i always seek trying to be alone far away from the lights of the others because it's a fantastic feeling of not hearing anything not seeing anything you really feel like and there the, the darkness is amazing it's not the darkness that you see at night it's a it's a complete total darkness. It's black. You open your eyes, you stay with your eye open, and you see nothing. So if at night you forget to bring your your light with you, close to you, you don't get up. You don't move because you could actually be in danger. So that feeling of silence, I think it's, it's a fantastic music to me. And I hated the moment when there was other music because I think it's a, a lost opportunity.
0: Yeah, I can imagine that the, 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 if anyone is playing music, uh the well we have a sound engineer here in the call but the it's probably bouncing everywhere and and you just hear it everywhere, right?
1: So, if I talk, I have to talk about a song, I yep. wouldn't talk about a space song. I would really say The Sound of Silence.
2: One of my faves, it's definitely going on, it's definitely going on the playlist.
1: Of course, I could have said Fly Me to the Moon, but at the moment I mean you inspire me and I think The Sound of Silence is really what uh, what uh what probably is a good theme for this uh, for this uh, podcast?
2: Yeah, that's, they're funny, aren't they? One. Caves, because you'd expect them to be quite reverberant, but sometimes they're not, are they? They're quite. Um, uh, you make a uh, click, and it and it doesn't come straight back at you. It's quite quiet.
1: There are few rooms that are very large rooms, but you have to have a very large room to have an echo. Otherwise, the noise is muffled. Mm. But it's not really reverberant. So usually you, you have, you have some sort of reverberation, but it's not a real echo. There is a, a there is a, the first video we did in 2011 has some of it in it at the beginning where you hear, you have people, because it was a very large room and you have somebody, Brandy Rasnik, a comrade that, that, that was calling, uh, Thomas Pesquet and it was actually saying, do you, and, and, and Tim and Thomas was talking, say, do you hear me speak? loud and so so it was like speak slowly and uh clearly if you want me to hear you because when you are far very far away otherwise the reverberation makes your noise your your voice not uh not uh understandable so you have to speak in a special way if you're distance in a cave that's for sure yeah, yeah. but but it's not real echo it's more of reverber- a reverberation yes well it's yeah.
2: too it's too chaotic isn't it the surfaces that, that are on there yeah
1: but but the funny thing is like I, I just the other day I read uh, a paragraph from Tim Pick Limitless book, and he was recalling when he came out of uh, the cave and say like when I came out, it was and it's the same thing that that I have. It's like for a brief few seconds, just mo- almost a minute you're ha- you overwhelmed by the colors and the, 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 the smell because you're coming out of an environment where you're totally, you, you only smell yourself and everything is dark and everything is sort of gray and black and you come out and the colors, you're sort of like, it looks like a painting. You're overwhelmed by colors and, and, and smells. And it, I just read it the other day and it's really, really, really a, a very special experience uh, because you're able to smell leaves, you're able to smell rocks. and You you wouldn't believe me if I tell you. But sincerely, come out of a cave after a couple of days and you're able to smell the difference yeah. for a very few seconds.
2: Yeah, it, it, that's very similar. I remember with anechoic chambers, when we used to spend time in anechoic chambers, you'd come out and you can really hear the reverberance even of a very, very sort of dead room. It's like, whoa, what's this? all this echo? And you think, yeah, everything has been turned up a notch hasn't it so yeah yes, yes. and it, it
0: all goes yes. back to this sensory overload in which at the beginning yes. you capture everything and then your body learns to what to let go and what to focus on right
1: absolutely absolutely it's okay. uh, it's fantastic too, but when you experience it it suddenly it's it's dawns on you it's it's a very particular very special very special thing
2: i suppose i suppose we're all going to go through this when once COVID-19 is finally defeated. We'll have that for <laughs> that few seconds.
0: <laughs> I actually have that now when I watch some movies or TV shows and we're, we're just large gatherings of people and they are touching each other. Or And it's, it's amazing because this is a year ago and you think, what are you guys doing? Stop yeah. it. Oh, yeah, and yeah, I, yeah. I think it really will take time to adapt again to, to that sort of life if we can. Um, okay um, I think on that note Loredana, <laughs> thank you so much for your generous time today uh, that was, I, well, thank I you really, really enjoy awesome. this yeah, this really conversation amazing. yeah thank you
1: well really thank you it. because uh, I mean I, I, I enjoyed it too I, I obviously I like talking about it uh, and I liked going and dwelling into into the different uh, elements of it so thanks for giving me the opportunity the
0: interplanetary podcast putting the ace Back
2: into space! There you go, Julio. That, for me, was one of the most interesting interviews I've done. I I genuinely think that that's such an interesting element of astronaut training. I I was amazed that it was so international as well, that that the Americans and and the Chinese and the Japanese, etc., all agreed to have their astronauts.
0: And now there is a queue (laughs) forming for astronauts that want to participate in this training. That just speaks of its success. Yeah. You know, ESA is a big organization and there are lots and lots of people, interesting people to meet. And I wanted to talk to Loredana for a while now, I think the the work she does is fascinating. So this was a really great excuse for me to to get to know uh, some of my colleagues a little bit better um i come out uh, really uh, motivated and amazed that we are doing this um uh, uh, inside the agency uh, it's 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 really you know we are in different countries and sometimes we don't get to see each other and uh, i learn a lot i learn a lot and i i i i loved this interview
2: yeah i, I the bit that i found really cool is the fact that it it really is all about going to other realms isn't it and, and 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 what humans will actually need to sort of live on the moon and and live in live on mars and and do all those sort of things i think it's gen, genuinely an amazing program
0: well that is the point of these analog trainings right yeah. um but this is the i
2: i i have always said that thing every time i talk to someone from the anal- from those from the other analogs is the One bit that's missing is the danger, but this actually genuinely has some actual danger in it, which I think is really, really cool. But even then, it, it's not the danger of getting on top of a starship and flying off to the flying off to Mars. Yeah. But
0: I you know, it just reminded me uh Kathy Sullivan. Uh she in her book she talks about I don't know if you would call it analog training, but when she was training, I think for the for Hubble um, deployment, they had to put on the spacesuit and go into the vacuum chamber. I don't know if you would yeah. call that analog training. I think you can call it analog training. And there you also have danger because something happens. The room is in vacuum. There is not really that much time to, to escape from that.
2: No. And and the fact that there's that element of actually doing meaningful work as well, I think it's really cool.
0: I would say most analog trainings, the subject of the test or the subject of training is doing meaningful work. Yeah, no, you're doing Either, meaningful even, work
2: in the fact that you're doing that you're doing the analog. So you can feel as though that's the meaningful work, but there's extra work on top of just the analog itself. Ah, okay. You
0: mean like the the scientific discovery yeah, of yeah the, like, okay. so actually okay, doing
2: experiments yeah. and doing actually following through a kind of scientific program to keep your mind off the experiment itself. The actual yeah, experiment. Yeah yeah okay. yeah it's like a mess it's I like layers. it's like onions of experiment going
0: on. But then again Pangea as far as yeah. I understood is is all about getting this I don't know pilots, engineers, to start thinking more like a scientist, to yeah. start thinking more like a geologist. Uh, that, that that was uh, also very a very, very interesting part for me of the interview.
2: Yeah, I mean, if you look through that list of astro- NASA astronauts that they've chosen to go to the moon or part of Artemis, mm-hmm. they have either got electrical engineering degrees or, you know, engineering degrees, or they've got geology degrees, you know, that's that's the two that seems that seems to be the two the two ones that you want you either want yeah or, the,
0: or marine biology as or well Or
2: biology yeah biology and of course there's um
0: yeah but test pilots also are always there yeah but um, even
2: the test pilots have all got engineering degrees I'm, yeah i'm going to put some lo- loads of notes up for this for this episode because obviously we need to, uh, all the all the notes about caves and uh, pangea uh, and everything that we've talked about. I'm going to stick. Where can people go to find these notes, Julio?
0: Our listeners should go to interplanetary.org.uk. Ah,
2: uh, that's the one. And if you want to get even more involved, you could go, as as quite a few people have done this week, I, I should imagine spurred on by Elon Musk's success, actually. I think there's there's a space vibe going on, and which is good. Uh, that's www.patreon.com forward slash interplanetary. Where you can join in the fun on the Discord channel if you uh, if you want to, it's ever so much fun. We're going to have a party for SN8. I hope you join us exactly. studio for the and um, if you uh, so SN9. I certainly not be say.
0: there. I will certainly there. But I will take the chance now that we are approaching the holidays and people will hopefully be surrounded by family when it's where it's allowed. And at some point they might bring the joy of this podcast to, to this family. Oh, the, 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 yes. the, the joy of the interplanetary Christmas. Uh they should go to their podcatcher and in the under Discover, they should search for the Interplanetary Podcast, right? Big time, big time. And you can get you can get it anywhere: YouTube,
2: Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts. It's everywhere.
0: It's- I use pocket casts. Yeah. Yeah. Pod, How about you?
2: Podchase is quite a good one. Podbean, they're all they're all there, they're all there, all good. It's all good. Um, yeah, it's certainly accessible. You don't, you don't need to, have, but if you're listening to it, you already know this. <laughs> Although you can obviously tell your tell your but friends. You, now now yeah. you go,
0: need to go and tell your aunt. Yeah, and your
2: it. aunt might not have that bigger grasp of technology, so you might have to burn a few episodes onto CD. Don't, don't be so mean on the aunt, or, or put them onto cassette.
0: My my aunt is a nuclear physicist. My aunt could be a nuclear physicist that is very caught up on on on, on every mobile device technology. Mm. Why not?
2: Yeah, yeah, no, no, that is true. Okay. I was I was being ageist like like my students are to me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what, what what have your students done to you?
2: Well they, they just bully me. They bully me they bully me Julio, but that's 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 another story. That it's not true. Okay. Got very good students who were very nice to me. Um, uh, That's it. Thanks, Julio, for stepping up again and being the co-host, and for getting such a great guest in. I, I genuinely loved. I loved the guest brilliant okay and let,
0: let's let's bring more let's, let's get some more in the future
2: let's get some more let's get some more of those really really cool it's particularly considering it's ESA and obviously huge 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 fan of the old ESA for big time so how are you going to wind down from your busy week
0: well a good dose of social distancing <laughs> mask wearing Yep, yep. I'm coaching a, a team of kids uh, rugby. Oh, wow. So Saturday mornings, I, I go and coach uh, rugby. Argentina are good at rugby as well, aren't they? Yes, I'm, I'm glad you bring that up. Yeah, yes, yeah. we are very, very good at rugby. Uh, Julio, thanks. This is it. Bye-bye, Thanks, <laughs> <laughs> Bye.